Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. All right. Well, if you want to turn with me over to Luke chapter 15. Today we're looking at the prodigal, as would be labeled in your Bible, the prodigal son. And no doubt if you've been in church any amount of time, you've probably heard this story before. Uh, You have, at least if you've probably, even if you haven't been in church very much, you probably at least are familiar with the idea of the prodigal son coming home. And so our challenge today is to continue to look into this old, old story and allow the Holy Spirit to give us understanding and unpack for us God's Word. So this morning we're looking at Luke chapter 15. We'll be looking at verses 11 through 32. Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. And we're going to pray, and as we turn there, to ask God's help to understand His Word. So Lord, this morning we, we come before You today and we ask, God, we ask for understanding of Your Word. God, we know that we cannot understand Your Word apart from Your Holy Spirit bringing illumination and understanding to us. So God, we ask that you would, you would open our eyes to see the glory and the beauty and the majesty of who you are, the way in which Jesus is revealing himself to us. And so Lord, we pray this morning that we would be mindful of the way in which you're speaking to us, and God, help us to fix our eyes upon you today. God, we also pray for Angelina and her children and, and that, that precious child in her womb right now. God, we pray for that baby, that that baby would come to full term. That, Lord Jesus, that baby would be protected and kept safe. God, we know that the stress on that family, Lord, with the mom being on bed rest, we pray for those two other little kids in her home. God, be with them. God, be with them. Lord, I pray for the parents to have patience and grace for one another, for their kids. And Lord, I pray that as a church, we would be able to be a blessing and an extension of your ministry to them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The story of the prodigal son, or the, the parable of the prodigal son. We've no doubt heard that word prodigal before, but I wonder how many of us know what the meaning of prodigal is. What is the meaning of prodigal? Who can, who can give me some feedback? What's the meaning of prodigal? Anybody? Anyone? What? Wayward. Wayward. You've completely ruined my message. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> All right, let's pray. <laughs> Wayward. That could, be, that could definitely be part of the definition. What else? What would we think of prodigal? Well, I'll, I'll break it to you because everyone's just on the edge of their seats, right? Prodigal means this, lavishly abundant or profuse. Lavishly abundant or profuse. And so here we are in Luke chapter 15, one of the most beloved chapters in all of the Gospels, where we have got the story of, of Jesus eating and, and spending time with sinners and Pharisees, and he begins to tell these parables about the lost sheep and the lost coin. 
and how the shepherd is pursuing and seeking after the lost sheep, how the old woman is, is looking after the lost coin. So we've got the lost sheep. One out of a hundred goes missing. He goes, he goes and looks. The lost coin. One out of ten. The woman goes and finds the lost coin. And now we get to the story of the lost son. One out of two. But in reality, both sons are lost. We're going to look more at that today. And in each story, we see something that is lost, something that is found, and then something that is celebrated. And so right from the beginning of chapter 15, we get the context for why Jesus began to tell these parables. It's important to understand why, in the first place, these parables came about. Why Jesus began to communicate these parables at this time. And so in verse 2 of chapter 15, we read this, And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So it's in the context of the religious leaders of the day who are watching Jesus' ministry and watching the way Jesus is interacting with people, watching the way Jesus is interacting with sinners in particular, and they begin to watch and, and, and see Jesus doing these things, and they're not happy about it. They're grumbling. They're upset. They're, they're not real happy about this. And so Jesus... In the context of the grumbling and the complaining of the Pharisees, launches into these parables. And really, in verse three, we see we read, and he told them this parable. So, really, there's we in our Bible, it's nicely divided with with, with sub, you know, headings that kind of thing. This is really one parable. The sheep, the coin, and the son are really one parable. It's not three different parables. And so we've got the one parable Jesus begins to talk about. And so let's look at verse. 11, chapter 15, we read this. And he said, this is Jesus speaking now, there was a man who had two sons. So right from the very beginning, we see that the the subject of this parable isn't the prodigal son or the older brother. The subject of this parable is the father. The father's the one who's identified from the very beginning as really the, the main character of this parable. And although we kind of get lost in the the myriad of details about the, the older son and the younger brother, it's really the dad, it's the father, who's the main subject of this story. Let's look at verse 12. And the younger of them, the younger of the two sons, said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now, according to the Old Testament, there were certain inheritance statutes or rules that you went by. So the older brother, in this case, would have gotten two-thirds of the estate, and the younger brother would have gotten one-third. And so the the younger brother goes to the father and says, I want my share of the inheritance, which would have been one-third of the the property. The younger son would have probably been in his teenage years, he would have been single, And this would have meant much more than just the father kind of going to the bank, getting some money, and going out and just kind of paying his son off to get rid of the inheritance. His money would have been tied up in property. It would have been tied up in in probably livestock. And who knows what what his father had his money tied up into. And so this would have been a huge deal. His father would have had to have gone and, and probably begin to subdivide up the property and begin to kind of 
sell the farm and all kinds of stuff. This would have caused great hardship to the family. It's like when, when there's a partnership of people and one person decides to liquidate what you have and the other partner's like, what are you doing? You can't really, we're not at a good place for that right now. It's not, it's not the right time. We haven't decided to do this. This isn't what we are planning on doing. But nonetheless, the younger son goes to his father and says, give me my share of the inheritance now. And the father unbelievably does it. The father looks to his son and does it. Now, we have to understand as well that the younger son going to his father and asking him for the inheritance before the father has passed away would have been also a huge deal. This would have been like the younger son going to his father and saying, look, you are dead to me. You mean nothing to me. I wish you were dead. As a matter of fact, give me what's rightfully mine after you're dead, and I'll be on my way. So this, son would, this would have been a huge insult to the father. This would not have been just some kind of like, okay, here you go, son. You know, I'm, I'm so glad this worked out for you. This is a great time for us. This would have been a tremendous insult to the father. This would have been something his son would have done to him that would have, would have caused great pain and shame in this family, in the community. Verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. This word for squandering of the property, this word for squandering is, is, is a word used to describe scattering or tossing. It's as if this, this younger brother who has gotten his inheritance went to a foreign country and just took the money and just tossed it away. He wasn't investing in properties. He wasn't starting a, a new business. He wasn't giving out micro loans. I mean, he, was, he took his money and threw it away. Completely wasted. Completely just took it and just tossed it into the wind and it was gone. And in verse 14, we see there begins to be a perfect storm. And when he had spent everything, every last penny, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. And so at the same time that his money runs out, the same time that his inheritance has ran out, there's a severe famine in the land. Food is scarce. Jobs are scarce. Everyone begins to go in need, and especially this foreigner who is not a dime to his name. Now he's in trouble. So what does he do? What does the younger brother do? Verse 15. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So now he's, he's at the end of his rope. He doesn't know what to do, so he turns to the Gentile, he turns to the foreigners for help. Now at this time, there were certain Jewish communities in foreign lands who, who had a system of almsgiving for the poor of their own, their own brethren. So he could have easily turned to his, his own brothers, his own Jewish brothers in this foreign country and said, hey, could you help me out here? I, I've got some needs. There's no food. I have no money. And would you please help me? And that would have been no problem. He would have received some assistance. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he turns to the Gentiles, he turns to the foreigners. 
it's as if he's completely lost his ethnic, his family, and his religious identity. Every single bit of it's lost. He's no longer associated with his family. He's no longer identifying himself as a Jew. And now that he's feeding the pigs, which was an unclean animal, which the Jews despised, he had completely lost everything that was once was what he was, is now gone. His family, his ethnic, and his religious identity. So he's hired to feed the pigs, and he looks at these pods. These would have been the pods of a carob tree, which were unsuitable for humans to eat, but were just fine for pigs. And he's looking at this, this food that the pigs are eating, and he begins to desire this food. He begins to long for this food. And the unclean pigs in this story become now more valuable than this son because at least they're being fed. No one gives a rip about this guy anymore. The pigs are being taken care of in a better way than even he is being taken care of. These pigs become now more valuable than him. He is at the lowest of the low. So what happens? In verse 17, But when he came to himself... He said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So this word is, he came to his senses. He woke up from where he was and said, what is going on in my life? And so in the household, you had two kind of of servants. You had the ordinary servants, the household servants, which would have been under the protection and care of the master of the home. They would have been fed. They would have been looked after. They would have been given provisions. They would have been provided with house, a place to live. And then you had the hired servants who weren't under the protection of the master, who could be fired within a day's notice, who weren't under the master's care or even provision of food. They were just kind of the day laborers. And so the hired servants were were the lowest of the low. And he thinks to himself, if I can just go back and become one of the hired servants, if I can just show up and at least get something to eat. And he thinks, he says, here's what I'm going to say. I've sinned before heaven and against you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. In this we see a humility and a confession. There is a humility that's issuing forth from this son that we haven't seen before. He recognizes his great need. He recognizes his sin. He recognizes the wrong that he's done against his dad and against the Lord. And the son expects nothing from his father but throws himself completely at the father's feet. I think this is the kind of repentance Jesus is talking about in verses 7 and 10 of this chapter. When he talks about there's a celebration in heaven over a sinner who repents. There's a celebration going on when one sinner repents. And here what we see is a sinner repenting. 
There's a repentance that's coming forth from this boy. And it's as if the memory of the father, it's as if the father is drawing his son back. The father begins to draw his son back by the memory of his goodness. So what's drawing this son back isn't just his own common sense. It is a memory of his father's goodness that begins to draw him back home again. His father is drawing his son back home from a foreign land. Let's look at what verses 20 and 21 read. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The son returns home. The father sees the son coming from a long way off. The father runs to his son, which would have been something that would be undignified for, a, for an older man to do in this society. It would have not been what anyone would have done. He, instead, he doesn't care what people think. He hightails it to his son. And he shows his son compassion. And he begins to kiss and hug and embrace his son. And now the son has the opportunity to communicate the things that he's been practicing since he's been in this foreign land. And he says, Father, I've sinned before heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father at this point could have said, Okay, and? Okay, were you going to say something else? Are you serious? That's all you have to say to me? After what you've done to me, how you've practically bankrupt our family and you've caused so much stress and harm and have insulted us in front of everyone in the community and you've shamed us and you've shamed me and the pain that you've caused me in leaving and basically saying, you want me dead and now you're going to show up and just say, well, just take me back. I'll be a hired servant and everything's going to be okay. But the father doesn't do that. The father doesn't do that. He, doesn't, he cuts the son off mid-sentence and breaks right in. He doesn't get a chance to say, and bring me back as a hired servant. Treat me as a slave. I am nothing in your eyes. I am such an idiot. He doesn't get to say any of those things. The father cuts him off. This is what the father says. But, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead and is alive. Again, he was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. He says, bring the best robe. This would have been the best clothes in the house. This son would have been filthy, a big filthy mess. Who knows where he's been, what he's done. He says, bring the best clothes for him and put it on him. He says, get the ring Put it on his finger. This would have shown authority of the son. And if it would have been the father's signet ring, it would, be, it would have been like the father giving the son power of attorney. I mean, this guy is, is going all out. Then he says, bring the best shoes. Bring the shoes and put them on his feet. The slaves were the ones who did not wear shoes. The family members were the ones who wore the shoes in this, in this context. And so he's bringing him back 
to full restoration. He says, no, no, you're not one of the slaves. You're my boy. Bring the best clothes. Bring the ring. Put the shoes on his feet. We are going to have a party. It is time to party. Bring the fatted calf. This would have been an animal that would have been kept for, for certain sacrificial celebrations. Bring this out. This was a rare delicacy in this day. And the father describes his son like this. He was dead, but now he's alive. He was lost, but now he's found. There has been a total transformation. His son has been totally and completely transformed. He says this is a reason to celebrate. This is the good news of the gospel. That those who were dead can be brought to life. That those who were lost can be found again. That Jesus Christ, in His grace, in His mercy, in His power, takes sinners who are dead in their sins and dead in their transgressions and brings them to life again. And we who are lost in our sin and lost in our rebellion against Him can be found and brought home and restored and called one of His sons. This is the good news This is what Jesus Christ came to do, to seek and save the lost. This is the work of Jesus Christ. He is seeking and saving those who are lost. And if this story would have ended here, it would have been just like the other two previous parables, right? I mean, that's where it ends. The celebration, it's great. But it doesn't end here. Jesus takes it one step further in verse 25. Now his older son was in the field... And as he came home and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So here this older son is, stayed home, working his fingers to the bone, and he hears the sound of music and dancing from the home. The music and dancing would have been people that the father would have hired out to do the dancing and to play the music. So they would have hired professional dancers, professional musicians that come into the home and provide this huge party for a lot of people. This fatted calf wasn't just enough food for just the family. This would have been a community event. Everyone's invited. Everyone's coming over. We're going to celebrate. We're going to party. The house would have been rocking. I mean, this would have been awesome. And here it is. The older brother comes home and says, what's going on? What do I hear? Verse 26 And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come home, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But what does the older brother do? But he was angry, and he refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him. So the older brother refusing to go into the party would have been just as insulting to the father as it would have been for the son to leave the father in the first place. Now it's the older brother's turn to insult and to shame the father. So he refuses to go into the party. He says, I want nothing to do with this. I don't know why you guys are celebrating. This punk who took all our money and destroyed it and ruined it is now come back and we're going to have a party for this guy? But the father's compassion for the son 
for the older son is on full display now. Even though the brother is refusing to participate, it doesn't prevent the father from doing what the father's been doing all along, been loving his children. And what was the older brother angry about? We're going to find out what the older brother is angry about. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and, you nev- and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, has come home, you killed the fatted calf for him. He says, I have served you. Another way for saying this, another translation would read, I have slaved for you. I never disobeyed your command, I, but you've never given me a young goat. He wants to do what the younger brother did, right? I want to party, just like the younger bro did. I didn't get a chance to do that yet, and you never provided it for me. And he says, but when this son of yours... And in this, he's distancing himself. He's completely removing himself from this relationship with the younger brother. It's not, well, when my brother came home, it's this son of yours. Like, this is your problem. I want nothing to do with this guy. And what's interesting about this passage that we see here is that the younger brother who was at home, who went to a foreign place, who removed himself from the home, is now back in the home. And the brother who stayed at home all along is now outside the home. Now he's the one outside and refusing to come in. Now he's the one refusing to participate in the celebration. What does this sound like? What does this older brother's reply sound like? Remember back to verses 1 and 2, right? Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. It's exactly what was going on in the very beginning of the chapter. You can almost hear the older brother say to the father, Oh, this man receives sinners and eats with them. This one welcomes home sinners and spends time with them and throws a party for them. How dare you do that? How dare you welcome this guy back who caused you so much pain? And here I am at home, slaving away for you, doing all that you've ever asked me to do, and you never threw me a party. You never did anything for me. I'm the one who's always got to be at home working. I'm the one who's always serving. I'm the one always obeying. And you don't care about me. It sounds so petty, right? You never threw a party for me. I never got a young goat with my friends. It's petty. It's almost as if the older brother is being shown as just being ridiculous. This is being ridiculous. And the older brother begins to list off his accomplishments, right? In his defense. Look, I slaved for you. I never disobeyed you. Those are very good reasons why you shouldn't take the younger brother back. and You should be throwing a party for me instead. And instead of the older, instead of the father responding to the older son with a, a good old-fashioned slapdown, which he easily could have done, instead the older father graciously responds to this 
complaining, pedantic older brother. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. He said, this is fitting. Another way to say this in, in the, the original translation, it says it was necessary. We had to do this. Man, your brother came back. We are going to throw a party. It is time to celebrate. And he says, son, you have everything. And really, he tell the truth, everything that they have is the older son's by the inheritance. His son, older son did own everything. He says, you have everything. Why? Not because you slaved for me. Not because you have obeyed me or have not disobeyed or gone wayward. It's yours because you're my son. And we can see in this the, the really the misunderstanding of the older son looking at what his father was doing as, as a, almost as a, as a contract. As, well, look, I slave for you and I work for you and I obey you and then you give me something in return. Right? I'll, I'll help you, and then you help me. I'll do a little of this, you do a little of that, we kind of meet in the middle. But the father's like, look, you're misunderstanding. It's not about this contract. It's not about you doing these good things for me that allow you to participate and experience this relationship. It's because you're my son. It's because I'm your father that we have this relationship, not because you've slaved for me or have never disobeyed me. It's about relationship, not work, not duty. The older brother had everything, and he completely missed it. The older brother had everything. He never understood it. And instead of joining in the celebration, the older brother only brings condemnation and accusation. This is a story about a prodigal father. This is a story about a prodigal God who has lavishly given his grace and his mercy and his kindness, both to the younger son who really didn't deserve it and even to the older son who didn't deserve it either. This is a story of a prodigal father. And this is, this is the response as, as, as the father, as a representation of God. This is what we see Almighty God doing in each one of us. I read this and I think, man, I am the younger brother, and I'm the older brother. I fall into both categories here. This is a story of the father's response to the brothers. I want to look at, in closing, identifying what the, the, older, the father was doing in each one of the boys and how he responded to each one. The younger brother... The younger brother responds to his dad with humble gratitude and repentance. This is what the father does. He welcomes. He doesn't wait for the younger brother to come home and grovel at his feet and and beg for mercy. He welcomes. He sees him a long way off and he runs and meets him. But we also see the father extending grace. This son had every right to say, Dad, you know what? 
take me back as a hired servant. The dad say, okay, maybe. We'll see. Let me think about it. You've really caused me a lot of pain. The father says, get the best robe. Get the ring. Get the shoes. We're going to throw a party. The father's extending grace. And the father's celebrating. This is reason to say, like, we have to do this. There's no, there's no other response appropriate at this moment but to celebrate. Once Abraham Lincoln was asked how he was going to treat the rebellious Southerners when they had finally been defeated and had returned to the Union of the United States, the questioner expected that Lincoln would take dire vengeance, but this was Lincoln's response. I will treat them as if they had never been away. This is a picture of Almighty God. I'm going to treat you like you've never been away. You're my son. We're going to see that you've come to full sonship. The older brother. The older brother can't believe what his father's doing. People have failed to live up to his standards and his mind, what he thinks is right and important. This younger brother squandered away his father's grace, squandered away his inheritance. But the father to the older brother continues to pursue the older brother. Right? He goes out, he leaves the party, goes after the older brother, and pleads with him Please come in. Please come into the party. The father had everybody to say, you know what? You can just stay outside. That's why you're going to act. He doesn't do that. He pursues the older brother. And he also graciously corrects and instructs the older brother. So like, this is not okay. Things need to change. You need to come in. This is fitting. We need to do this. This is important. I think for each one of us, we can identify ourselves with either the younger brother or the older brother. If we've just come to faith and we remember how it was before we came to Christ and the way in which we lived our lives and the foolishness of our sin and rebellion against Him, and we can remember so clearly that moment when we felt and experienced the forgiveness and the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ. I want this for us as we read this, to fuel worship. As we sing songs we did this morning about the, the, the majesty of Jesus Christ, of welcoming the broken and the lost and the poor, for us it should fuel worship. That this is what Christ Jesus hasn't just done for just kind of the general population, but for me specifically. That I have been redeemed and I have been transformed, I have been changed, I have been brought into His family, I have been filled with His Holy Spirit, I've been called one of his sons. This for us should fuel worship. When we think about the Lord, our hearts should should break for him and celebrate him and rejoice in him. It shouldn't just be, okay, we're going to show up here like Tim said, let's kind of go through the motions. We worship the living God. And he is in our midst. And we have an opportunity each and every week and each and every day to come before him and to come before his throne and worship Him, and praise Him, and give glory to His name. I want this to fuel worship for us, remembering the work of Jesus Christ. Now He's redeemed us. 
I think for us this also fuels a gratitude in our heart. There's a gratitude. There's a thankfulness. As we see the goodness of God in our lives. How we're not left out in the cold, in the dark. But we're brought into the home. We're brought in. We're seated at Christ's table. We're filled with good things. With Jesus Christ himself. And lastly, I think it fuels humility. It fuels a humility. Recognizing that the reason we are where we are and who we are is not because somehow we figured it out and no one else has, or that we're smarter than everyone else, we're better than anyone else, that we have thrown ourselves at the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ, and He has lifted our heads and brought us into His home. It fuels a humility. We haven't earned this. We haven't worked so hard to deserve this. It is purely the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. But for those of us who are like the older brother, we've been around for a while. We've heard this story a million times. We see the the excitement of of new believers and the joy that they have, and we think, oh, that's great for you, pal, but that'll wear off soon enough. Wait till they ask you to serve. Wait till they ask you to give. I do my duty, put my time in, put a little something in the plate as it goes past. That's what we do. I want for us to see this and understand that God's grace is pursuing us as well. That God wants us to understand that it's not about what we do that brings us to Him, that brings us into relationship. It is the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ that brings us into relationship with Him. That we don't deserve this relationship, but yet Jesus Christ has chosen to lavish His mercy upon us anyways. I also want us to remember this is relationship, not duty. This is about a relationship, not about duty. Just like if I came home with some flowers for Michelle, some chocolates, and she says, Honey, thank you. Why have you done this? This is so great. I said, Honey, because it's my duty. Because I'm supposed to. So good husbands do. We give flowers and we give chocolates. It's my duty. It would be awful. It would be terrible. Ralph and Bev celebrating their 34th wedding anniversary today. Congratulations. It's about relationship, right? It's not duty. It's not duty. It's relationship. In the same way as we think about our Heavenly Father, it's not about duty. It is about relationship. And the good news of the gospel is this, that whether we are the older brother or the younger brother, whether we have been the one who has thrown ourselves into sin and rebellion, or we've, in our minds, lived a good life at church and doing the good stuff that God wants us to do, Jesus is inviting us back into relationship with him again. Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest, and I'll give you relationship. He has promised to welcome all those who come to him in faith, and to bring them into family, to bring them to himself. And no one, no one is out of the reach of God's grace. There's not a person here today who is out of the reach of God's mercy and grace on their lives. Not a single person has sinned too much 
that God's grace isn't more still. No one here has gone to a place where Jesus Christ hasn't been able to reach. And I want to encourage you this morning. If you are here today, you think, man, I've done some stuff that if God knew, He would never accept me. I want you to know two things. Number one, God does know. And God still desires for you to repent and receive His mercy and grace again. To receive His mercy and grace and relationship. It's all because Jesus Christ has made it possible for us in His death and resurrection on the cross that He became our sin. See, in the story, the younger son had sinned against his father. He had completely wasted his father's inheritance and all these other things, and the father absorbed that. He had said, well, you, we'll start the payment plan tomorrow. It's going to take you a while to pay this back, but I'll get every last penny from you. Teach you a lesson. The father absorbs the loss, and in Jesus Christ, he absorbs our sin, taking it upon his body in our place. So we come back we receive full forgiveness and full relationship. No one is out of the reach of God's grace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we pray this morning that, God, we would be aware of your grace and of your mercy and of your power. And Lord, I pray today, if there's anyone here this morning who is sitting here who is not come to you in faith, who's not understood the, the incredible riches we have in you, Jesus Christ, I pray that you would begin to draw people to yourself this morning. Begin to draw us to yourself. God, I pray for the older brothers, myself included, this morning. God, that we would understand, that I would understand this is not about duty and, and work and service. Lord, but about relationship. God, I pray that we would understand that and that we would respond to you with wholehearted worship and gratitude and humility, recognizing, Lord Jesus, who we are before you. In your name we pray, amen.